You're listening to TIP. I realized I was living in California and taxes were a thing. And I, I had to ask myself, how can I lower these taxes? So I started getting involved in real estate, whether it was single family or multifamily, and just learning more about how I can defer taxes. And at the same time, I was staying in dozens and dozens of Airbnbs over the course of those five years for my job and you know, hiring and recruiting and learned how poorly ran they were at the time by mom and pops. So that's the short story of kind of connecting the dots with both sides of the coin there. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Sif Kafagi to learn all about how his company, TechVestor, makes investing in Airbnbs simple, passive, and profitable. You'll learn about his early career at Facebook, how he's gone about building a vertically integrated short-term rental company, what gives TechVestor their competitive advantage, and what trends Seif is anticipating in the short-term rental market. Seif is an ex-techie turned real estate investor who's helped thousands diversify into real estate after spending nearly five years at Facebook. He's syndicated acquisitions totaling more than $100 million while designing and developing more than 125 properties. Today, he's the founder of TechVestor, which helps real estate investors and busy professionals passively invest in the emerging asset class of short-term rentals, aka Airbnbs. I loved hearing about how Seif has built TechVestor, and if you enjoy founder stories or are into learning more about the short-term rental market, be sure to check this episode out. And so, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Seif Kafagi. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me today is Mr. Seif Kafagi from TechVestor. Seif, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm happy to interview you today. I had the pleasure of interviewing one of uh, your guy that's in charge of acquisitions, Taylor Jones. Had a great time learning about TechVestor. But I want to hear more about your story. You've got a really fascinating story. We've kind of touched on it a little bit before the interview started. I wanted to hear a little bit about your kind of experience early days while you were working at Facebook. You worked there for five years, just getting involved in real estate. So, you know, you've got this tech background, but you're also in the Bay Area, working, living, doing a lot of traveling. Talk to me a little bit more about just how you the interest in real estate got sparked. Yeah, I was in a very privileged position being in the Bay. I was uh, working for one of the biggest tech companies in the world during a time of growth, and I was being paid very well, living as a single male in the Bay, workaholic. And all of a sudden, I realized I was living in California and taxes were a thing. And I, I had to ask myself, how can I lower these taxes? So I started getting involved in real estate, whether it was single family or multifamily, and just learning more about how I can defer taxes. And at the same time, I was staying in dozens and dozens of Airbnbs over the course of those five years for my job and you know, hiring and recruiting and learned how poorly ran they were at the time by mom and pops. So that's the short story of kind of connecting the dots with both sides of the coin there. So you mentioned single family stuff, multifamily stuff. Were you doing that on your own or as an LP? A multifamily I was doing as an LP. Single family, 
I was trying to buy a couple here and I was getting into the idea of like out of state investing and remote investing and buying things that worked. Interest rates were normal at the time. You know, I had the W2 income that banks loved and things along those lines. So I was trying to do things actively, but I also realized very quickly that I did not want to be active in the long term rental space. The reason for that is and I didn't I wouldn't know why until much later, but there's no true operating advantages, in my opinion, as a long term rental owner. It kind of sounds the rents and you kind of hope for the best. You can operate somewhat better than other people, but you can't really drive significantly better revenue than others. The market sets the comps or else you just don't rent. And I didn't like that, right? As a creator, as a builder, I, you know, and someone who typically wants to excel in a space and get more outsized returns, I asked myself, well, how could I make this better? How can I be the best performer in this asset class? And obviously I was staying at a bunch of short-term rentals and I saw how poorly they were operated. Same single family asset, but different operations. And I was like, I can be better than that, right? I can do better than that. And that's kind of where the journey would start. I'm curious about you as a kid, did you have any side hustles, entrepreneurial ventures that you did? Like, was that part of your DNA growing up? I did. I did. It's funny you ask. So, I mean, uh, I started probably dozens and dozens of things that ultimately failed, whether it was in hours or months, <laughs> right? Whether the failure rate, everything from selling on Amazon is to flip cars. You know, that's actually how I put myself through schools, flipping cars. And uh, I started a business for youth kids for like summer camp, ended up selling that like three months after. It was my first big check that I ever got. It was a five figure check. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can just start businesses, build them, scale them, and eventually exit them. So I did that. And then I would eventually in college, I was really good at interviewing with companies and it was mostly soft skills and a bunch of my colleagues had the technical skills, but they, they, they didn't know how to interview. And so I built a small startup that would help folks get and break into big tech, Google's Facebook of the world. And, you know, that worked out pretty well until Facebook called and said, why don't you bring those skill sets inside instead of telling all our secrets to everyone outside? So that's kind of how the journey would eventually progress. That's awesome. I've found that's kind of a common theme among a lot of the people that I interview is like they've often had at a young age, they've gotten involved in some kind of side hustle or entrepreneurial gig, small business, whatever. Sounds like you had a ton of different things that you were doing. I wanted to hear more about that interviewing aspect. So you got brought onto Facebook. You took a team, I think, tell me the numbers, 80 when you started to over a thousand. So when we first started the, you know, our team, which was on the infrastructure side, had about 80 folks in the org. I was brought on just to recruit simply. Um, and then I'd eventually grown to management, I think within the first year or so, year and a half and start building my own team to help recruit. But it was hyper growth years for Facebook, right? It was, we want to hire 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. And our boot camp sizes were in the thousands, opening up new offices left and right. So it was just, it was just a lot going on at the same time. You know, Facebook obviously had the recognition and the brand name, but our job was find the best senior talent, convince them they can not only come work for Facebook, but this is pre-remote work. So this is convince them to come work for Facebook and move from, you know, the example you and I were talking a little bit about earlier was, you know, move from Dayton, Ohio to Facebook, New York. And what does that mean for their family? It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about where they were working. It was convincing this family of four why that was a good idea and what their life would look like. And so you've been able to bring the, all those skills that you learned at Facebook to TechVestor. We're going to get into TechVestor a little bit here in, in shortly, but I first wanted to hear your five years in at Facebook. At what stage do you meet Sabrina, your partner, and get this idea for TechVestor started? 
Yeah. So Sabrina and I ran in similar circles in general. She was in multifamily real estate. She's actually had her real estate license even back from when she used to live in New York. And she ended up working at Apple specifically on AirPods. She was one of the lead project managers for AirPods as it would launch. And we'd often find ourselves in the same room in the same conversation around real estate and technology. She used to own Airbnbs. I was staying in them and we would connect on the idea of why they would suck. And, you know, she would tell me how she would run things. And I was like, that's a lot better than how these are being ran, at least from my perspective of a guest. And, you know, why why couldn't someone scale it as an asset class? And obviously speaking to folks in the, on the multifamily side where we were potentially LPs as well, everyone was like, you can't scale it. It's not possible. And here are the reasons why. But for us, we said, but we could solve some of that with technology. Like your problems that you have because you have this real estate perspective sounds very hard, but that same problem through our lens is actually fairly easy because we could build X or do Y. And when we took that approach, and I think actually us being naive is really what allowed us to start this business. Because if, if I knew what I knew now, knowing the journey of how hard it would be, I don't know if I would have done it. And I think that's just an honest representation of an entrepreneur saying, hey, this is hard. It's hard to scale. It's hard to do. There's a million and one moving pieces. But I think being naive at the beginning really allowed us to go in blindly and build right? Without knowing what to expect next. I wanted to hear more about the startup phase, actually leaving the security and safety of Facebook. You had, I think, just had a, a baby, a kid. So that is a huge jump to do. I think there's a lot of people in similar situations. They're in a salaried position. They've got the entrepreneurial itch, whether it's real estate or small business or whatever. But that jump from a W-2 job to something new and entrepreneurial is tough. Can you talk about your experience of that? Yeah. I mean, we were pregnant in our last trimester and, you know, my wife and I sit down and I was like, Hey, I want to do this thing. And it was terrifying to be quite honest with you. It was also during a time where COVID was more rampant than ever before at the time. And, you know, it's like starting this type of business during COVID <laughs> and leaving a job where you're about to have a baby and obviously all the perks that come with it. It was a tough conversation, but my wife and I, which I mean, God bless her soul. She's the most supportive woman I think I've ever met in my life. You know, she's like, let's do it. You know, let's figure it out, whatever it means. Having that level of support was insanely probably the most important thing, but she took care of everything else while I was able to build. And I think that partnership really allowed us to succeed and excel. And, you know, I, I was raised in a kind of very traditional family where, you know, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go work for the big brand name. And it's something can you kind of gloat about at Thanksgiving dinner, if you catch my drift, or mom gloats about it at Thanksgiving dinner. And so for me to tell even my family that I was leaving this quote prestigious job to go be a, a nobody to build for myself, was, there was a lot of thrash for sure. You know, people thinking that they know what's best for you. But at the same time, I've always wanted to do this. And I knew the earlier I do it, the easier it would be just with kids. And I arguably, I still did it too late, but I ended up doing it. And uh, I'm very proud that we did. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. 
Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. So you launched it during COVID. I mean, looking back on things, you wish you would have started prior to that? I mean, more so on the family dynamics, right? You know, today I have two kids, two boys, you know, both under the age of three and you ask yourself, you know, obviously family impacts decision-making and time and financials, right? And so if I would have started five years ago, I, I would arguably would have been in a much better place, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Did I know what I knew five years ago? No. And sometimes it's just about timing, right? When things eventually, quote, click in your mind. And that's when things clicked for me, right? Sometimes it takes time for things to click. Yeah, I interviewed a guy a couple of weeks ago, Ben Wolf, who I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's got a company called Steonera, and he had some interesting thoughts on it. Similar situation, I think, to you. He started his company with a just newly married, maybe a kid on the way. Tough to do, but you know, his it's just he kind of did worst case scenario thinking like, what's the worst case scenario? I end up working another W two job. It's where I'm at right now. It's like, why not at least try it? You know, I can at least go back. You know, you've got a marketable skill set, so. 
That's exactly kind of how we felt. And I think that's the first person actually told me that was was my best friend. He goes, open up your LinkedIn. So I opened up my LinkedIn and he goes, go to your messages. And I went to my messages and he goes, how many unreads do you have? And I was like, a decent amount. And he said, great. So if this fails, you know, right back here. So take a shot. And, and it's you, you worked hard to get in that position to build and, and build that scale and have that marketable resume, as people will call it. It is what it is. And, that, you know, people in this world do pay attention at times to where you've worked and what you've done. It is part of the, the life that we we live and judge. Sure, absolutely. So I want to hear about those early hires. You've got vast experience hiring people at Facebook, you know, over a thousand people, it sounds like. Talk to me about like the first couple of hires that you did, how you went about finding and acquiring talent to help grow TechVestor. I'll tell you a story, although my wife won't agree with it. So my team calls me the DM king, but my, my wife says I have no game in the DMs. So but in the recruiting world, for me, it was about building the best foundational team possible. And the reason for that is I saw it firsthand at Facebook. If you could build the best possible team, everything else becomes solvable. And you also needed to find people who were so passionate about the problem that you were solving that it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about anything else because the problems were so hard that they would need to find ways to overcome it. And so folks like Taylor, who you've interviewed, you know, I reached out to him, I think it was through Twitter um, at the time, and he was just his passion for short-term rentals and numbers and acquisitions, you could just tell was very clear. And I pitched him a lot of Kool-Aid, like come drink this Kool-Aid, right? Here's what we want to build. Here's where we're going. Here's a, here's a journey. Here's a roadmap. Here's how you can help shape it. It took me probably two months, two and a half months to land Taylor, give or take. And it was just a lot of long nights and a lot of recruiting. And, you know, I was very fixated on landing someone like himself. We'd eventually land folks like John, who's our head of data, also known as the Airbnb data guy in the space through networks. The great thing with talent is once you hire really great talent, they typically also know really great talent. It becomes this beautiful flywheel effect, right? He came through, he knew Taylor. That was a great win. We added Josh, who's XDR Horton, right? Has ran single family track maps all across the country in the past and also runs vertically integrated construction companies today. So he understood renovations and renovations at scale and remote renovations. And we added Mick, who's our head of asset management over from Vacasa. He used to run portfolios there. And all these folks were meticulously picked and recruited either by me or someone in our network. And I think one of the biggest tips I would give to anyone listening to this podcast on hiring is put yourself in a position to hire people far before you're ready. Hire great people and figure out what to do next. And I think oftentimes big companies and even small companies, they either don't have the privilege to do so or they don't see far enough into the future to where they could. You know, when we hired probably half our leadership team, we didn't need them when we hired them. It was we ran across them, talked to them, met them, and we were like, wow, we need this skill set. We need this person, this really smart, passionate individual on our team. And let's figure out what we're going to do next. I have no idea what they're going to do, but I'd love to have you on my team. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it. Let's take a step back a little bit and talk specifically about TechVestor. What's your vision? What problem are you guys trying to solve for? Just kind of bare bones, basic stuff like what TechVestor does and what you're up to. TechVestor makes investing in Airbnbs simple, passive, and profitable. So it's really hard to find an Airbnb. It's even harder to run one, a profitable one as an investment. And so we take all that off your plate. You invest with us with as little as 25 grand. You're an owner of a diversified portfolio of short-term rentals. You get your share of cash flow, appreciation, tax benefits, and everything else in between. We handle all the work, including guest communication, renovation, acquisition, management, taxes, and send you a check every quarter. 
So in a nutshell, that's what we do. We give you exposure to the asset class without you having to do any of the work. You mentioned the data guy. I wanted to go a little bit into maybe your secret sauce a little bit about how you're finding properties, acquiring properties. Talk to me a little bit about the data that you guys pour through to find the right properties to put in the portfolio. Yeah, we have real estate fundamentals first. And so while there is tech in our name, we build technology to guide us. And the reason I want to make that distinction is sometimes we hear people say, oh, you're a tech company. And the short answer is we're not. We're a real estate company that happens to build technology. We're not like Zillow where we're making offers using AI and automations and just blindly. We are human led and we believe real estate should be human led first and foremost because it is hyper local. So we do have a lot of data and technology and we built our own internal software. We actually started as a software product back in the day where we underwrite hundreds of thousands of homes. We market map 250 plus markets across the country where we understand real estate supply, Airbnb supply, Airbnb demand, who's going where, what's the flow of travel, where, when, and why. And that data really allows us to pinpoint where we buy, what we buy. So think of a funnel, right? It's really broad to begin with. And then our data tells us, hmm, maybe we should focus on this market. And in this market, these are the ideal properties to buy. What I mean by ideal is bed count, unit size, head count size. Then the next thing is, okay, well, what else is about that property? Sometimes it's as specific as it needs to have two living rooms, a pool, be on a third of an acre and be within these two sub neighborhoods of this larger market. For whatever reason, that's where the density of revenue tends to gravitate towards. And then from there it's, okay, how do we design it and amenitize it for who's going there? Oftentimes owners amenitize for themselves, their second home, et cetera. We don't do that, right? It's an investment first, so we amenitize for who's going. So then we start to build and build and build down to you have a very specific buy box where in X market, we're buying five bedroom homes with a pool, two living rooms, adding these specific amenities, designing and amenitizing in this specific way for this specific avatar, because we know that's what works. That's what the data tells us. And more importantly, we know that the data tells us the current operators are doing reasonably well, but we know we can do significantly better because we can get economies of scale. We have way better revenue management. We have way better design and amenities. We were purpose building and designing because we have the capital technology and talent to do so. So therefore we believe we can do better than what the market is. That's the, in short, how we think about using data and technology to bridge all that gap together. I wanted to hear why you chose to vertically integrate. Why not sub out things? Why not keep it? I wanted to hear about that decision, why you chose to, in some ways it's a lot more complicated, a lot more employees, obviously, a lot more management. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. And in short, we were forced to vertically integrate. We actually didn't want to when we first started the company for the very same reasons that you're actually bringing up. We said, we're really good at these two things today. Let's focus on these two things and sub out everything else. We signed a $25 million contract with one of the largest property managers in the country. Picasso, because we needed a national property manager, right? That would understand what we do because we were buying everywhere. That made sense to us at the time. And two things happened very quickly. Their standards weren't our standards. We had a miss on those things. We had a much higher demand for the type of experience and product we wanted to build and deliver to both investors and guests. They didn't have those same standards. And two, Picasso started going down the hole. Go look at their stock today. They're just a completely different company. They started cutting services, cutting headcount, things that, that were a part of our agreement weren't. And we actually, to be quite frank with you, that was the first time in our company's health that I thought, okay, is this to be the beginning of the end? Because how are we supposed to go build all of these things this quickly in the middle of a fund? And from acquisition to design to renovation. So we ended up deciding to build our own operating company, our own opco. So we run a very 
traditional opco propco model in the real estate space and building the opco came out of the pain of seeing how a company like vicasa was handling our product and we just went for it we built we had no other choice to be quite honest with you patrick right we were said we have to do this we have to do that we have to scale we have to be able to offer these things it's either that or this fund's gonna die and our backs were against the wall and in retrospect i can't imagine a world where we don't have the opco because of the advantages that it gives but at the time it was we had to do it or else we die that was the first moment where you're like it's give or take are you guys like for property management, for example, you're doing your own, obviously, in-house. Do you manage anybody else's or do you strictly stick with your own properties and your own portfolio? Nope. We have tunnel vision. So our thesis in the industry is, first of all, owners of the problem as well as property managers. And we, for a hot second, tested out the idea of managing for third parties and saw how painful that is for a variety of reasons. So today we don't manage for anybody. We only manage for ourselves. Everything we do is vertically integrated for ourselves. We own the dirt, we own the property, we own the operation, we own everything on top of it. We can control every aspect, which is what allows us to drive the best possible product. And you guys are going into many multiple markets, right? You're you're spread out geographically. Are you spread out in terms of like the type of property that you're buying to in terms of, or you kind of focus on a, you figured out what works or talk to me a little bit about how you narrow in on the property that you're going to buy or develop. Do you actually do any new development? Not today. It's something we've looked into and something perhaps we'll consider in the future. But today we are focused on buying kind of run of the mill homes and being able to develop them from this type of business, which is a single family home or a lack of a business into a business generating asset. So our one of our investors actually told us this very early. They said, you're taking you're getting development like returns without taking on development like risk. We're not actually building the product, but because we're operating it differently, we're generating that significant alpha. And so we're able to get those return profiles today without building. Um, and maybe in the future we'll consider building, but going back to your question, we buy in several kinds of markets. I think we're in seven or 10 markets today off the top of my head that are active. And in each of those markets we buy, there it's hyper-local. It could be a five bedroom plus, it could be a four bedroom plus, it could have to have a pool, it may not have a pool, each market is a little different. But we have asset level diversification, we have seasonality level diversification, because as you might imagine, short term rentals, a product in the summer in Scottsdale is actually it's low season, but a product in say the Poconos in Pennsylvania is actually it's high season. So we want to balance those things out. And we want to build a diversified approach to seasonality, traveler type, risk profile, insurance risk, and a bunch of other variables, right? So it's an ETF for lack of a better word, of the way we think about it is, you know, it's our version of the S&P 500. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefine sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Right. So let's say I'm a guy, a woman listening to this. I've got 25. 25 is the minimum number, right? And you've got to be an accredited investor. I've got 25,000. I want to invest with TechVestor. Walk me through the process of what the onboarding process looks like. Yep. So you'd go to techvestor.com. You'd book a call, talk to one of our incredible investor relations partners. Uh, they'd walk you through the investment, answer all your questions, and you'd be sent our data room to review right after. Make sure that you you know can review it with your partners, make sure it's a good fit for you. Assuming you want to move forward, uh, the minimum is 25 grand and you can go obviously as high as you'd like. Bigger check sizes do get better terms in terms of splits and prefs and all that kind of good stuff. So your investor partner would have already uh, shared that with you. You'd go ahead and sign your PPM, which is a private placement memorandum. In there obviously is a very long document on things like risks and disclosures and things you should know and a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo that we have to share with you. From there you would wire, get onboarded to your portal and you'd start receiving your quarterly check as soon as we start generating cash flow, depending on what point of the fund we're in. You share in everything, cash flow, appreciation, tax benefits, everything's pro rata. So the nice thing here is it's as if you literally bought the home yourself. You get all the same benefits, except you get none of the headaches. So talk to me a little bit, if you can, about returns. I don't know that you can promise any kind of returns, obviously, but what kind of returns are you expecting? I was just looking at, you had a record setting July. It sounded like, I think you had close to a million dollars in revenue beat projections by 127%. Like, you know, you guys are doing great. So talk to me a little bit about the returns. How quickly can I, you know, the rule of 72, how can I double my money? How quickly? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. So first and foremost, and I think you hit it on the head, nothing I'll share here is a guarantee or a promise. And I'm sure my many lawyers will want me to say that. But, uh, you know, the idea is that you're going to double your money over five years, right? That's the projection. About half of that, give or take, is going to come from cash flow and income. And half of that is going to come from equity on exit, essentially the sale or appreciation of the of the home or the asset. You're, you can expect your first distribution to happen within usually three to six months from investing. And we send out money on a quarterly basis. We target an eight to 12% annual cash on cash dividend or cash flow. And then the remainder is really on exit. We plan to hold for four to six years. That's our general projected hold period. Obviously, no one knows what's going to happen. We have fixed rate debt. All of our debt is fixed for a minimum of 10 plus years. If not, most of it is 30. So we're never going to be a forced seller. So in the event that we need to hold for seven, eight, nine, 10 years or more, it's a possibility. But we are hyper incentivized, everyone, including investors and ourselves to generate the best return. And oftentimes that's finding the best exit sooner than later. But aggregating those assets will be important. And yes, a 2x equity multiple is the target. So talk to me about more specifically about the exit strategy. What are you guys planning? What are you targeting? How do you think about that? So one thing that we tested very early is would retail folks who are looking for turnkey homes, just essentially being a normal landlord, would they be interested in just buying these turnkey short-term rentals? And the short answer is it's a resounding yes. We sold eight in our first fund, beat projections all across the board. And, you know, we just saw such an insane demand for that. What we didn't realize is how much appetite institutions actually have for what we're doing. So we've gotten contacted by the who's who on the institutional level. When you think about single family buying, but what they're looking for is buying a stabilized portfolio. We haven't really met an institution that wants to build this because it's hard to build it brick by brick. They need to go spend $100 million in a transaction for it to be interesting for a variety of reasons. And them seeing us build and build and build, they've come to us and say, hey, we're interested at 300, 400, 800 doors because this is something that we want to own. And so our exit strategy is most likely geared towards institutional. And that's what we want, right? Because you get cap rate compression with density, with scale, with the number of units, they understand the business economics, and you ultimately really become the only player in town. If you wanted to go today to buy 200 short-term rentals on a single transaction, doesn't exist. You can't do it. And the reason most institutions actually haven't entered the space is because they can't do it themselves. It doesn't make sense for them to spin up, go vertically integrated, do a $500,000 home at a time, but they'll happily pay the premium to someone who already has. That's kind of been the message. And that's kind of our specific exit plan. So are you in talks with those kind of buyers now? Yeah, definitely. In fact, I have one of those conversations today after this podcast. And, you know, none of those conversations are firm. And I want to be very clear, you know, just because of anyone listening to this podcast, I wouldn't want to mislead anyone. We don't know what's going to happen, right? Conversations are conversations. But in terms of appetite, I think the appetite is very strong from an institutional level. They get it. They understand real estate, they understand density, they understand scale, they understand higher revenue generating assets and cash flow. They're looking for yield and they're very intrigued by what we're doing and they continue to remain in conversation. Did you think at all, we are the Investors Podcast Network is the background is Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and, uh, you know, the idea of long-term holds and just letting money compound over years and let it grow exponentially. Moses Kagan comes to mind on real estate Twitter. He's another proponent of just holding great real estate, never selling it and letting it compound. Is that something you guys considered at all? It is. And it's probably a question that I get way more often than I would have ever expected, to be honest with you, right? When you raise money, I think oftentimes the first question you get is, when do I get it back as a GP? And then 
a follow-up question you often get is, well, if things are going well, why would you sell? It's almost two conundrums, right, that conflict each other right away. And the reason we have a plan to exit is because I think we have to have exit options. But I also think, and what we really share with investors is, time will tell what the best outcome will be. We're flexible. We've done everything right to hedge. We have fixed rate debt for a very long time. We continue to operate very well. And if time tells us that longer hold periods or forever hold are a better option, then I certainly think our investor base will be open to that, right? I think the opportunity of what we're doing is very different and really hasn't been done before. So it's very hard to kind of map it to something else and say, hey, we can do this for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years and it's going to be the same high performing asset. I think we want to be flexible with let's do what's best, right? And just have that open mind. And if holding for a very long time makes sense, and I think generally that'll be what will happen and most investors will be very happy to do so. I think the answer will be obvious when it is. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to hear a little bit about just the trends that you see going on with Airbnb, the short-term rental market. I listened to an interview yesterday with uh, Richard Fertig. It was a year-old interview, but he couldn't have spoken more highly about the space. You also hear about like an Airbnb bust or Airbust or whatever whatever they say. Talk to me a little bit about what you see going forward, like the next 12 months, 18 months, just in the space and some of the challenges that you are expecting. I'll answer that from two ways. I think for current operators, I think you have had a large influx of supply. And I think you see in the headlines of, oh my God, there's an Airbnb bust happening. I think that's mistaken. I think that's misleading. And you have to remember that 95, 99% of this industry is mom and pop. It's, and I'm not, it's not only the managers, it's also the owners, right? And people say, oh, well, this property's professionally managed. Well, sure, but that's, it also has rules that an owner has set that is being ran by a professional manager. And so what I, what I think we'll see is, you know, your bottom 10 or 20% of properties will very much continue to struggle. What really makes them different? There's no amenities. They're not being operated well. It's being operated by an individual or a company that doesn't know how to optimize for revenue and profitability and ranking. Airbnb, all it is is an algorithm. It's just like Google ranking on the first page, there's a way to do it. And most people don't really understand that. Airbnb has a user journey that they want to take their users to. And the product is you, right? It's your product. It's your house. So how do you feed into that? So I think you'll continue to see an exodus of Airbnb hosts because they're going to compete with more and more professional operators like Ben, like Richard, like ourselves. And we all have very, very different products. I'm an LP with, with Richard and Stomp. And, you know, they have a very different thesis and approach to what we do than what we do. And Ben and Onera are building very different type of homes than what we do. And I think all of us are going to win, actually in our own verticals because we're all institutional level type operators who understand what we're doing compared to the status quo. Secondly, I think you look at today, the moving forward things that are really hard is you have a lack of real estate supply, historic lows. It's really hard to acquire. And I think that's where we have an advantage with technology where we continue to market map and understand what to buy. But I think it's also another advantage when you can take a product that isn't perfect and make it better, but you need to have the skill set to do that. The and the capital, right? I can take a product that maybe isn't my perfect buy box in the same market and renovate it and design it and change it to make it my perfect product in this market. Your average mom and pop owner who needs to spend a quarter million dollars to do that renovation 
probably finds that pretty scary to do for a variety of reasons, capital, time, intensity, what they don't know. And so you'll still, I don't think you'll see a lot of people get into the Airbnb side on a retail level very soon, especially in the markets that we're in moving forward, especially if real estate supply stays like this. And I think that's where you'll lean on people like myself and our team here at TechFester with what we're doing. I think Ben's doing something that's awesome. And I mentioned Richard as well, but we're all doing very different things, but they all feed into where the world's going. Do you focus on those bottom 10 or 20% of poorly operated Airbnbs as possible acquisitions? Not today. And I'll tell you why. Like for us, we find the most value in taking a property that's never been an Airbnb and turning it into one. That's where we create the most alpha and value for our investors. And if I buy an existing Airbnb today that's doing X amount in revenue and that owner values it the way I would value it if I was selling it, I won't be able to generate that alpha, right? We'd be almost doing the same thing. And so for us, we look for something that really hasn't been an Airbnb. We've bought in a few and you know we've done really well. There was one that we bought that was doing about 140 grand for three years prior. First year with us did 210. And it's like, clearly we can add value very quickly, but we much prefer getting those development-like returns, like I mentioned earlier, without taking the development-like risk. It's for us where we add the most value. So what are some of the things you're doing right off the bat in terms of amenities, build-outs? How are you generating the alpha, increasing the value of those properties? It's not rocket science. So when I say these things, you know, I, I want to be very clear, better design, better amenities, things like, you know, we add in pickleball courts and basketball courts and hot tubs and golf simulators and things that we believe will be things that people care about for the next seven to 10 years. It's not just a, a pool. It's not just a, a thing like that. Um, we also just know where supply and demand imbalances lie. Like, you know, you look at a market that might have 30,000 listings. I look at that market that has 2000 listings that compete with us, but has demand for eight because I know the data, I know who's going there. So we look way, way below in the data and peel back the onion, better operations. I can't, our, we, we look at revenue management by the minute. I can tell you seasonality by the day. We built our, our own internal tools because we couldn't find the tools exist on the marketplace because most owners aren't like this. So those are a few of the reasons why we certainly outperform. What's the long range vision for you guys? Uh, do you do a yearly fund? Like I know you've done, I believe, two funds at this point. Do you do a new fund every year? How does that work? And what's the plan going forward? Yep. So we definitely do launch a new fund each and every year. And the reason for us is we build a new diversified portfolio, right? And if we were holding forever an evergreen fund or something along those lines could certainly be attractive. And we may eventually at some point in the future consider those types of options. But for us, it's about launching a new offering, a new portfolio, new diversification, perhaps new markets in each and every one of those type portfolios. And it's really what our investors are looking for, right? It gives them a little bit of diversification across the board. See, this has been awesome. I've really appreciated your time. It's great to learn more about TechVestor. Super interesting concept. How can people learn more about you, more about the company if they're interested in potentially investing or, you know, just out of curiosity, want to learn more? Yeah, folks can head over to techfester.com. We're on LinkedIn. We're here to educate. On techfester.com, you can hit that big, nice purple request invite button and uh, chat with us. Learn a little bit more about what we do. And if we can be of resource to you, we'd love to. And if it makes sense for you to invest, we'd love to have you. Cool. Thanks, Seif. This has really been fun. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Patrick. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.